It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of our podcast. We are joined today by one of my favorite people in the world to listen to, to read, um, and actually also to talk with. Uh, He was a conservative thought leader. He may disagree with that description. He may disagree with the word was. He may disagree with all of it, but that's how I knew him. He was a conservative thought leader who had something of a career shift. He now teaches at Harvard, but what he teaches is a topic um, we all can and should major in, and that topic is happiness, the art and science of happiness. He has a new book out with a co-author that you may have heard of. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Oprah Winfrey. He is Arthur Brooks. The book is Build the Life You Want. It is an irresistible title, well-written, uh, well-conceived, and with that, the author, co-author, Arthur Brooks. How are you, Professor? I couldn't be better, Trey. It's nice to see you on Zoom while we record this podcast, and great to talk to you, too. It's been too long. It has been a long time, but you've been busy writing and teaching, and I've been pretty much doing nothing except watching college football. So (laughs) beats working for a living. (laughs) (laughs) It does. If you can pull it off, you know what? I was surprised ab initio to use one of the old Latin phrases. I like from law school, literally from the beginning, because every time I've ever seen you, you've had a smile on your face. Yeah. Nothing seems to like really bother you. You were in a line of work where if you had kind of, you know, if you had easily hurt feelings, they would have stayed hurt and they never looked hurt when you were in D.C. or were a conservative thought leader. And yet the very beginning of the book, you confess that this happiness for Arthur Brooks requires work. Yeah. 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 For the longest time, as a matter of fact, I study happiness as a scientist my background is in the social sciences. I was trained as an economist, did a whole lot of work in social psychology, later in neuroscience. And, and uh, the, I do work in that area precisely because I want the answers. It's kind of me search more than it's research is the bottom line. And, and the, the problem isn't that I don't lack happiness. The problem is that I'm, I'm a high affect person, which is to say that I have very intense positive and very intense negative emotions. And that has to be managed is the bottom line. You know, a lot of people, they think, that, you know, negative emotions are bad. Positive emotions are good. Get rid of your negative emotions. But that's not true. It's simply all information. It's information about the outside world and the amplitude inside my head is pretty high. So I have to learn how to manage it. And, you know, the process of learning to manage it as a social scientist over the past few decades has meant that I try to conduct myself in a way where self-management is is productive, where self-management is is helpful to me. And, and, and in so doing, maybe it's actually kind of pleasant for others. That I, I, I think I'm correct in saying that was my first recollection from the beginning of your book, but I can't, the dominant recollection from the beginning of your book was the story you told about your mother-in-law. Yeah. And she had every reason in the world to choose discontentment. Uh, she figured something out. Yeah. And then she shared it towards the end of life. So with that, you tell us what she figured out and, and, and particularly the epiphany maybe she had at the end of life. Yeah. My mother-in-law was an extraordinary woman and not very many sons-in-law say such a thing. <laughs> um, my mother-in-law was, uh, is, is Spanish. My wife is Spanish. We got married in Spain. My mother-in-law never spoke a word of English, as a matter of fact, and lived her whole life, most of her adult life in Barcelona, which is where my, my wife is from. She had a hard life on paper. She lived through the Spanish Civil War, through poverty, through hunger, living in hiding. Her father was in jail for years because he was on the wrong side of that fight. 
um, their side lost. And it was civil wars, generally speaking, when one side loses, the other side puts the losers into jail. And sure enough, that happened. And, and, and furthermore, she went on to build, uh, you know, to construct her life, starting with a marriage that was a failure, you know, a guy who ran around a lot and finally abandoned the family and poverty. And, and she had every reason, as you say, to be an absolutely miserable person, just like we see people in the United States who have deprivation, who have problems in their lives and where, where circumstances conspire against them. And they could very justifiably see themselves as victims and to define themselves as victims and to act like victims and to feel rotten, justifiably, not privileged at all. That was my mother-in-law. Well, by the time she was about 45 years old, she came to a, she told me this later because I met her in her late fifties. She died at 93 last year. She was, she and I were as close as mother and son. And, and when she died, before she died, she told me that in her mid forties, she, she figured something out, which is that she was waiting around for the outside world to give her a good hand, to give her a, have a, you know, a decent husband, a little bit of money, a break, give me a break, just give me a break. And she was waiting for the world to give her a break until she realized she couldn't wait around for the outside world. She couldn't even change the outside world. All she could do was change herself. And so she got into the serious business of running the startup of her own life. Not exactly those words. They don't quite exist in Spanish, but, and so she, she did a bunch of things that she hadn't done before. She said, look, I'm lonely. Um, I I'm sad about being abandoned. I don't have enough money. Um, I'm confused. So she went to school at 45. She went to college at 45, got a teaching degree, became a public school teacher, began to support her family. She started to work on the business of herself. And at the same time, she, she started taking care of her faith life. She made her own friends. She built a relationship with her adult kids or her growing kids at the time not relying on her ex-husband. And just about that time, the ex-husband's like, can I come home? <laughs> and, and she thought about it. She said, you know, I don't need that guy, but maybe on my terms, I'll give it a shot. And they wound up having another 50 years of pretty happy marriage because she had changed herself. And that's the basis on how we can build the life we want. This is the Trey Gowdy Podcast. More of our conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Arthur Brooks, is next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I don't know how much traveling you do. I, I, I think... Either you said or maybe you quoted her as saying, you know, we had 54 years of marriage and 40 of them were happy or something like that. I, yeah, I, it was 68 years of marriage, okay. uh, 54 of them happy. <laughs> I guess that was a, uh, a decade long estrangement, I guess. Um, yeah. You, you've traveled. I, I, you know, I went to Kenya and Tanzania when I was a teenager. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to South America. I have seen people, Arthur, that had a reason to be upset, a reason to be sad. I mean, you look at the Maasai tribesmen, which we watched, and they have nothing. And the, the most radiant smile. And then we come back home to the U.S., which is the most bountiful country in the world. And we have an unhappiness epidemic. Yeah. yeah. How do I square that? Well, to begin with, the United States has had kind of a climate of unhappiness and then weather of unhappiness as well. And, and this often happens in countries that get really rich. You find that they get really rich and then they become unhappy. And we have to understand that because, you know, we don't have a good excuse in this country. Now, the, the reason the climate of unhappiness in this country is because money has crowded out four things that we really need. Faith, family, friendship, and, and the sense of serving other people through our work. And so you know, a country that's become very materialistic and very distracted and all about media 
the problem that we have is that that has become kind of a cult has kind of substituted for the things that we really need. And I, I look at this, Oprah and I look at this in this book very scientifically. I mean, the data are unambiguously clear that the happiness portfolio of people is faith, family, friends, and work that serves other people. It's just that simple. If you're going to focus on anything, it's those four people are less religious than they've been before. They're less spiritual. They're less likely to be involved in their families. One in six Americans is not talking to a family member today because of politics, which is completely insane. There's only one reason to lose contact with your family, and that's actual abuse and differences of political opinion are not abuse. Um, people have fewer close friends. They have a lot of deal friends, but not very many real friends. And last but not least, people are less and less likely to think that their work is a way of serving other people. That's the climate problem. And that's been getting worse and worse and worse. That's a cultural climate crisis. Then there's weather, which is the big storms. The first was the advent of social media around 2008 which coincided kind of with the financial crisis, but that's a coincidence. It was social media that made people lonely, alienated them from their friends, made it impossible to see each other in person. And the second was the, was the coronavirus epidemic, which, uh, which made people lonely and we've never gotten back together again. And right in the middle between those two things was the, was the, 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 the crisis of political polarization where media and about 7% of the population and media and a lot of politicians and a lot of leaders they have profited from getting us to hate each other. And if you hate your neighbor, you're just going to be a less happy person. That's what's going on in our country. Those are the problems we need to solve. Your co-author is um, one of the most famous people on the planet. I, yep. I would say one of the more beloved people on the planet. Um, yep. I remember her from the color purple, but she is so much more than an actress. I mean, she is uh, she, she is a one person gross domestic product machine. It's amazing. And I was stunned when she defined happiness as sitting under a tree, reading a book or taking a nap with her dogs. <laughs> You're a scientist. You're not going to embark on this journey without a good working definition of happiness. Or is there one? Is it just what she said? Yeah. Taking a nap with our dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So what she's saying is that she feels a lot of happiness in those moments. Happiness itself actually is not a feeling. Feelings of happiness are evidence of happiness. Like, you know, the smell of the turkey is evidence of your Thanksgiving dinner. So she feels those things that give her evidence of her own happiness. Happiness really is a combination of three things that she has. And and, and, and a lot of us have, um, and, and we can all get more of if we understand it and we pursue these things. It is a combination of enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Those are the three things that we need in life. Enjoyment, which is not pleasure. If, you're, if your life's goal is to get pleasure, you're going to find addiction and misery. And there's a lot of brain chemistry behind that. There's a neuromodulator called dopamine. Most of the people listening to us right now have heard of dopamine. And what it is, is it, you know, it's, it's active in your brain to give you anticipation of reward. And it lies behind all addictions, everything from methamphetamine to, uh, to, uh, to gambling, to um, eating highly glycemic foods when you shouldn't, to you know, really bad, dangerous stuff like pornography. It all activates the dopamine circuits in the brain. And that's people who pursue pleasure. Pleasure, but enjoyment takes sources of pleasure and adds people and memory. That's where we can experience it really in the executive centers of our brain. And it becomes almost divine people and memory. That's why, you know, Anheuser-Busch doesn't have a beer commercial of a dude pounding a 12 pack alone in his apartment because that's the pursuit of pleasure and that's dangerous, but they have an ad where the guy is with his buddies and cracking open a but or and 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 saying you know here's to this day make with people and memories that's enjoyment satisfaction is the joy that we get after struggle and it has its own difficulties and i talk we talk about that a lot in the book and the last is meaning you know meaning which is you know the idea that your life has purpose your life has direction your life has coherence you're significant that's what really matters and one of the things we talk an awful lot about is the huge crisis of meaning that a lot of young people have there's a there's a little test for people to take to know if they have a meaning crisis, to know whether or not that that is the source of the lack of happiness in their life. You, you want to take the test? Who, you know, me? Uh, yeah. I hadn't passed a test since I looked on somebody's paper in college, Arthur, but I'm happy to try. Yeah. Well, you're you're going to pass this one, Trey. You're going to pass this one, Trey, because there's a lot going right in your life. Why are you alive? Um, Why am I alive? I think 
Uh, I would answer that question by saying God gave me the gift of advocacy and advocating on behalf of people who uh, don't feel capable or empowered to advocate on behalf of themselves. Solid. For what are you willing to die today? Uh, My family. Um, I would also say someone who's not a family member, but um, I don't I don't like injustice. I don't like people being treated unfairly and I don't like it enough that I would sacrifice for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so these are solid answers and I believe you and you know, you're grown up and you've thought about these things an awful lot. A lot of young people don't have real answers to these questions. Why are you alive? I don't know. For what are you willing to die? I don't know. And when you see somebody find these answers and, and by the way, if you those listening to us, if you don't really feel like you have answers to this, it's incredibly good news because now you know why there's a feeling of hollowness in your life. That's, that's, that's making it harder for you to attain happiness. And now you know the questions you need to answer. It's not like some go sit at a cave with a guru and, and hope for the best or, you know, one weird trick on the internet. No, 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 no. You need to find the answers to those questions. Why am I alive? Your answers. And for what are you willing to die? My own son, you know, that's like I said, he was graduating from high school and wasn't ready for college. And it's like, he was goofing off all the time and not even having fun. And his name is Carlos and Carlos is awesome. Right. But, and I said, you need to find the answers to these questions. Where are you going to find them? And so he put together a little strategic plan. I make my kids write a business plan in high school because, you know, I'm venture capital. So, and they're the entrepreneurs. So, you know, I need a business plan if I'm going to fund them. And, uh, and so, you know, I send it back for revisions. If it's not original enough, just like a <laughs> venture cap. Anyway. So I'm a fun dad, as you can imagine. It's like my dad teaches at the Harvard business school. No kidding. Um, and so Carlos's business plan was I'm going to go work on a farm and learn about myself work outside with my hands hard alone. And he did, you know, he worked on this dryland wheat farm in Idaho for this really solid Catholic family for a couple of years, made a bunch of money. Then he joined the Marines, which is the second part of his plan. And today, you know, four years later, he's, you know, Corporal Carlos Brooks, scout sniper, uh, Marines three, five out of Pendleton, which is a very stressful job for me and his mom, you know, when his phone is no longer, we can't track his phone anymore. <laughs> You know, but I'm telling you, you know, he's 23 now. He's married. He's got his life going on. He's got answers. You know, I've asked him, and, and this is the secret to it. So every young people listening to us today, I mean, my son's answers are not your answers, but here's his answers. Why are you alive? Just like you, Trey, God made me to serve. For what would you be willing to die? And not very many people are called on that, but Marines are. He says, for my, for my, my, my faith my Christian faith for my family, for the people I work with and for the United States of America. I'm willing to die today. Now, boom. And it's like a mic drop, man. It's a mic drop moment because this is, this is the day that my son goes from unhappy adolescent to a a man that's got his life going on and has happiness in his future. All right. One of your two questions um, involves uh, our demise. Uh, the end, uh, which is a great question. What are you willing uh, to die for? Uh, there are folks, you know them, Arthur, I know them, uh, life dealt them a really seemingly difficult hand of cards, whether it is a terminal illness when you're in your 30s or 40s, whether it is a, a degenerative disease where, in, I mean, death would almost be a respite, but you have to live with it. Right. How do we find happiness even in a forest of bad news? Yeah, it's really tricky. And, and I, you know, I'd say I've um, the other day I was uh, called on because of my work, you know, teaching happiness. I do a lot of media these days and I was doing a show and somebody called in and say, how can you be happy after losing a child? How can you be happy losing after losing a child? You know, I've never lost a child. I've got my three grown kids and they've had close calls, man. Um, but I haven't, I've never experienced that. I'm a grandfather now. And I can only imagine that. I mean, that's something that, how do you recover from something like that? But I have worked with a lot of people who've suffered that and who've suffered, you know, terrible things that I can't even imagine. And the ones who are doing the best, the ones who can authentically say, despite these conditions are happy are the ones that are serving others. You know, what I find is that the people who they can't, they'll never forget the child they lost, 
But the ones who can make sense of the fact that there's great loss in life are the ones who use their own loss to help other people who have lost as well. They're those who, who, who dedicate. It's funny. I mean, I talked to a guy one time who in college um, got drunk at a party and ran over a pedestrian and killed him. Right. And, and he's like, I killed this guy. My life is over. I mean, what am I supposed to do? And, you know, he went to jail six months and, and he get, came out and became a drug and alcohol counselor. And he helps people understand. He says, look where you, what you're doing here. And let me give you a cautionary tale. And he's used what happened in his life as an opportunity to lift other people up. And that's the best that we can do. Look, we're all going to suffer. We're all going to suffer. Sooner or later, you don't got to go looking for it. It's going to find you. And the only point is not, you can't avoid it. What you can do is manage it, use it, learn from it, and serve others with it. That's what suffering is really all about. And we can say life isn't fair. Woe is me. I mean, the story of Job is the story of Job. But the truth of the matter is, if you want to make the most sense out of suffering that you possibly can, use it to serve your sisters and brothers in need. I'll get this wrong because you're better read than I am. But I think it was Tolstoy that said the essence of life is human service. I mean, that, that, that is the essence of life. Yeah. All right. I wrote something down because I needed you to to help me with it. I, I viewed happiness as like the end goal. And I think I wrote down that you said happiness is indeed not the goal. Right. And unhappiness is not the enemy. And that's when I knew I wouldn't pass your class at Harvard. So tell me, tell me how we've been talking about happiness, but yet it is not the goal. Yeah. I mean, people often say, I mean, Oprah says that in the 25 years that she did her television show that literally she would say, what do you want to people who are suffering? So they would always say, I just want to be happy. There's a huge problem when the human race has been saying, I want to be happy and hasn't achieved it after millennia after millennia. And, and the answer is there's an explanation for why, you know, the thing that we most want, we can't find, look, we can make lunar landers and TikTok videos and, you know, and we can do SpaceX and, and electric cars and whatever we want. The, but we can't get the one thing that we really want, which is happiness. And the reason is because it's unattainable and it has to be unattainable because humans are not made to be ultimately happy. Happiness and unhappiness, the, the sensations that we get from happy and unhappy emotions from day to day and the experiences that we have that are positive and negative, we need both to, to, to survive. You know, what we consider to be unhappy is usually a whole lot of unhappy feelings because things are not going our way. Sadness, anger, disgust, grief, these things that we feel. We've evolved those emotions because we need to stay alive. You know, if you got rid of your negative emotions, man, you'd be dead in a week because you wouldn't be able to react to the outside world. These are the aversive you know, sensations that we have because the world is not going to hand us permanent bliss. I mean, that doesn't come until the other side of heaven. I mean, the whole point of the beatific vision to be in God's presence is to be free of all the things that bring negative emotions. But in the meantime, get down on your knees and thank God for your negative emotions because they're keeping you alive and negative experiences, which make it possible for you to learn and grow. The only goal for us. And so what we're saying here, by the way, is that happiness is not a destination. It's a direction. The goal is to go in the direction of getting happier. That's why Oprah calls it happierness. That's the goal in life is happierness. And we absolutely can do that. If we learn how to manage our emotions, which this book has all kinds of scientific techniques for managing your emotions to stop distracting yourself, what really matters, and start making investments in the parts of life that will give you the greatest happierness that can be your lot, which is by investing in faith, family, friends, and, and work that serves other people. We talk in depth and in detail about how to do all those things in this book. All right. I, I learned something else. I don't know why I thought anger was a secondary emotion. It's um, I'm frustrated. Therefore, I get angry. I'm disappointed. Uh, but my expectations weren't met. I always viewed anger as like a reaction, a secondary emotion. But you make a pretty convincing argument that it, you, you would include it in the primary emotions. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's basically six primary emotions. And primary emotions are the ones that are produced by a part of the brain called the limbic system. This is not under your control. The limbic system functions autonomically, which is to say automatically, in response to things that you perceive around you. And all it's doing is sending signals so that you know what's going on and can react. That's all emotions are, just pure data, pure emotion. There's four negative ones. And there's two positive ones, basic emotions. They're, they're primary emotions. The negative ones are fear and anger and sadness and disgust. And they're all evolved in different ways. Anger is evolved because you need to react to things in an aggressive way when, it, when they threaten you. That's why anger was evolved. Now, it's horribly maladapted, right? We get anger all the time because, you know, some guy cut in front of me in traffic. Who cares, man? But, but you interpret it like somebody who's, you know, threatening your life. Or yeah, you, you interpret it as somebody who's going to take your food and you're going to starve to death. Or something. Your, your place in line is like your allotment of food for the month. It's craziness. But but that we do we in modern life we maladapt a lot of these things. The two positive emotions are joy, usually when you see somebody in your kin and which or or something like that. And then there's interest. So people are listening to us right now going, huh. Now, Trey is talking to that dude at Harvard. That's an interesting conversation. And the reason they keep listening is because it gives it gives positive emotion, which is interest. We're evolved to be interested in stuff so that we'll, you know, we'll learn a new bush that has berries on it on the savannah. And we'll say, oh, that's so interesting. I learned a thing because we get better. Life gets better. We prosper. We pass on our genes. We survive another day. That's how the primary emotions work. Four bad, two good. There's more brain space that's allotted to negative emotions than positive emotions. And the reason for that is that positive emotions are pretty nice to have. Negative emotions keep you alive. And so they're actually more important. All right. You convince me. Um, we need we need those for our survival. Yeah. But we don't need to like wallow in them. We, yeah. we don't need to dwell in them. Yeah. So. I mean, the things that get me angry is probably not the right word, but maybe is the things that get my attention are not major things, Arthur. They're not threats to my well-being. They're not. I mean, they're pretty. It's like a bad call in a college football game (laughs) against my team. So, I mean, can I control my negative emotions? Absolutely. And that's a big part of what this book is all about. This is really life changing for a lot of people. You know, when a, when a kid, I mean, when our kids were little, remember that they, they couldn't control their emotions and they would, you know, something would happen. They didn't like, and they would start screaming. And we always said the same thing to our kids when they were little, use your words. What are we telling them? We're telling you to put space between what you feel and how you react. Now, as a, as a neuroscience matter, here's what's really going on. Your limbic system is producing anger. That's what it's doing. It's producing fear. It's producing sadness, producing disgust. It's sending a signal saying that something is not right in your life. That it will send that signal to the, what's called the prefrontal cortex of your brain, the most modern part of your brain, but it takes a minute to get there. And that's where you decide how to react. Little kids don't have the wiring between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. That's why when they feel anger, they yell. When something's funny, they laugh or scream or whatever it happens to be. When something is scary, they cry immediately, right? Because they're reactive. Lots of adults are reactive too, but we don't have to be. You want to get as much space between what you feel feel and how you react as possible, as much time as possible. That's called metacognition. You need to be aware of your feelings, study your feelings as if they were happening to somebody else. So it's like, so in other words, a call, a, uh, a, an official makes a bad call, Michigan wins the game. And you're like, hold on a second. Hey, you know, Trey is feeling kind of annoyed by that right now. Now, why would that be? That would be because this feels kind of unjust, but, you know, come to think of it, this is not very, really very much of a threat. I think Trey is kind of reacting to that as if somebody had come and, you know, you know, threatened to carry off his wife from his cave 500,000 years ago. And that seems kind of inappropriate. As a matter of fact, that's kind of amusing. And suddenly you're managing it in a different way. That's a form of metacognition. Arthur, I don't want anybody to come carry my wife out of the cave, but but don't make me pick between the right call on pass interference. And what, I mean, I'm going to pick my wife. 
Man, you're such a you're, you're a she, all day long. College football has a predominant role in your happiness. <laughs> well, she's a big fan of yours, and I know she's going to listen to this podcast. She skips most of mine, but she's a huge fan of yours. In That's fact, phenomenal. someone on social media asked me within the past week, "Hey, when are you going to have Arthur Brooks back on your podcast?" And this had been on the books for a while to have you yeah. on, but you. You have a rabid following, and I can only imagine I, – I cannot imagine anyone that doesn't at least have a passing interest in understanding the art, the science of happiness. I, I just – I mean, who, who would walk up to you and say, you know, Arthur, that book's just not practical? Well, I mean, if it were just theory and just a bunch of neuroscience, it might not be practical. And that's the reason that we put a lot of exercises in there about, you know, how you can actually be become more metacognitive. For example, you know, it might it might be kind of hard that every time that you're annoyed in traffic or at a college football game or watching sports or whatever gets your goat. It's hard to, you know, back up and analyze yourself, but, you know, things that are really big, there are ways that you can actually do it. We talk about in the book, for example, you know, when you're feeling sad, when you have a lot of sadness in your life, that's why journaling is so critically important because you move the experience from the limbic system of your brain into your prefrontal cortex when you write it down. Another example of that is anxiety. You know, we have a lot of anxiety in our society, a lot of young people in particular, and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have generalized anxiety disorder and they, and they give them a prescription for something, an anti-anxiolytic drug, right? Now, the interesting thing about that is that, that, that you can actually understand your anxiety by noticing that Technically, anxiety, all it is, is unfocused fear. It's just unfocused fear. And that means is that something is turning up the sensitivity of your amygdala a little too high. It's turning up your, you know, the sensitivity to all of the stuff that's going on around you. And so if you're looking at a lot of social media, that'll make you anxious because it, you're just, you have this kind of unspecified fear that's going on around you. And once you understand that that's happening, cause you're, 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 you're writing down the, like, let me make a list of the five things I'm actually afraid of right now. Your immediately, your anxiety starts to fall. That's how that's, and you, cause, and part of the reason is because you've now taken it from the realm of the ghosts, the hungry ghosts in your head, to the CEO in the front, right behind your forehead, who's like, no, 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 no. We're going to worry about this and this and this. We're not going to worry about that and that and that because your prefrontal cortex can order these things. It can make a list. It can understand the list. And so that's how metacognition really works. And people can do that. But until you get very practical like that, okay, you're feeling anxiety, write down the five or 10 things you're most worried about right now. And that is a metacognitive technique that will cut your anxiety like a knife. And that's what this book has in it. Um, that part of your book and your answer, what you just said, um, it was a book written by a Stanford, either psychologist or psychiatrist, when panic attacks, how to sort of think your way through this emotion of fear. Like, I, I mean, I'm not afraid to fly. Um, I'm af afraid to like riding a car with my wife driving, but I'm not afraid <laughs> to fly. But for people that are, it's real. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, and what you talk about is move to the CEO in the front. You're more at risk driving down the road you live on to go to the airport than you are having an accident in an airplane. Yeah. You're the CEO in the front of your brain. will do something like this if you're afraid of flying. And you know, these phobias are real, no joke. And they come from, you know, all kinds of different fears or traumas or, you know, things that we actually haven't worked through. But the way that your CEO will cope with that, the CEO inside your prefrontal cortex will cope with it is saying, yeah, I actually know intellectually this is not a problem. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to expose my limbic system progressively to this experience so that it is no longer threatening. In other words, the CEO, your prefrontal cortex actually has to manage your amygdala. And the way that it'll do that is by saying, okay, I'm going to go to the airport and look at planes. Next Thursday, I'm going to come back and I'm actually going to come into the terminal. Next Thursday after that, I'm actually going to get on a plane and get back off again. Next Thursday after that, I'm going to let them close the door. And what are you doing? You're making routine and ordinary something so you can calm down your amygdala from something that's really been stirring it up. That's a perfect metacognitive approach. Thinking your way through these things is really critical. It's so possible for us to do. Another example of this is classic. 
a lot of people have so much anxiety about what's going on in social media. You know, look, a lot of our friends in D.C. who are still holding public office are compulsively checking their Twitter feed. I mean, we know them, Trey. They're buddies of ours. And they're doing mm-hmm. it's like, holy moly, man. And and, the, and their chests will tighten up as soon as they see people saying that you're some sort of a fascist man. And, and that's not fair. And they get into these Twitter wars and and the whole thing. And what the reason that that's going on is because they have a fear of being cast out of a tribe. That's an ancient primeval fear. That's a fear of wandering the frozen tundra and dying alone. You should be very afraid of being cast out of your tribe. As a matter of fact, there's a part of your brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that lights up when when you're facing social rejection. It's a pain section of the brain on social rejection. That's bad. But you know what? Twitter, it ain't the tundra, man. The problem is it's it's activating the same part of the brain. And once you know that it's you're no longer it's no longer your master. It's no longer you're like <laughs> Twitter's trying to be the tundra. That's what, you know, Elon Musk, man, he's trying to light up my dorsal anterior cingulate cortex again and all these bullies and cancel culture warriors and keyboard thugs, they're just trying to light me up, but sorry, I got knowledge now. You can't get me anymore. That's such a beautiful example. It also makes me wonder how we define tribe. If someone that I've never met (laughs) who knows nothing about me is saying that I'm the dumbest person on earth. I mean, if you think about it, Arthur, how would they know unless they met everybody on earth? How how would they know that I indeed was the dumbest one? So why does that bother me? But But it does. Happily not on social media. Happily. Yeah, no, that's a great thing. And and I recommend that everybody uh, limit their social media consumption to 30 minutes a day across all platforms and do it all at once in the morning for information, just for information. But never use social media as a pastime. Never use it as a way to spend your time because all it'll do is it'll, it just... It, it engages your dopamine system. It's in, it's actually the way that the algorithms are written is like a slot machine. So if you're in Las Vegas and you walk by a slot machine, there's a motion sensor and it starts to go ding, 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 and light up so that it'll engage your dopamine sense. And the same thing is true with social media. It has a, it has a reward that happens sometimes, kind of like gambling, and it tries to hook you. They're trying to, and, and that's one of the reasons that people so compulsively use it and it tends to rule them. And I recommend that people really limit their consumption, get off it if they possibly can, uh, be really careful with your kids. Um, you know, Twitter will radicalize them no matter who, what their politics are. Uh, Instagram will make them feel like they're inferior to others because of social comparison. TikTok will make them feel lonely. Those are the three different channels of unhappiness that come from social media. So you're doing the right thing by being off it if you can. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Uh, two more questions, and then I'm going to let you go back to work, and I'm going to go back to semi-retirement. Um when readers you got digest, a show every day, this is working. Don't, don't. <laughs> readers Digest would come out when I was a kid, and I would immediately go take the vocabulary test because uh, my dad made me read the dictionary for fun. So I wanted to see whether I was making any progress. And then I would read a section called Laughter is the Best Medicine. Yeah. That was my favorite section of Readers Digest. What? what role does laughter play in our pursuit of happiness? What, what role should it play? It's a really interesting emotion. Humor is an incredibly complex emotion. The way that humor works, by the way, I'm like, I don't want to wreck all the jokes for you going forward, but the way that humor works is that all humor creates a tension of something that doesn't quite make sense. And then when you resolve it, it actually stimulates a part of your brain that makes you laugh. Now, 85% of human laughter is not associated with humor. 85% of laughter is actually social lubrication. So, Trey, when you see an old buddy of yours from college and you haven't seen each other for the longest time, you're just laughing the whole time, even though nobody's saying anything funny. And the reason is because you love him and he loves you. And so that's and, and when you meet somebody that you really want to 
get along with really well, you're both laughing. That's part of the reason. But when you're laughing, it's because that tension is resolved in your brain in this particular way. And what it does is it, it, it has an incredible ability to substitute for negative emotions. So one of the things that I often talk about in my work, and, we, and, and Oprah and I write about in this book, is using humor strategically as a substitute emotion for sadness when the sadness is maladapted. Now, there's reasons to be sad sometimes. There's nothing wrong with being sad. If you're not sad enough, it means there's a problem is the truth of the matter. But a lot of the time we have kind of this chronic sadness about what's going on in life. I have this friend, um, you heard, you know, Rain Wilson, you know who Rain Wilson is? Yes. Yeah. He was, he, yeah, he played Dwight in the office. Yes. But he's a buddy of mine. Um, we grew up five miles apart from each other in Seattle and we're more or less the same age. And, uh, I didn't know him then, but we've connected over that over the years. And I asked him one time, I said, how, why are so many comedians depressed? What's it? What's the deal with? I mean, a lot of them suffer from yes. clinical depression. As a matter of fact, I said, what is it about comedy that makes you depressed? He says, no, you got it wrong. And said, a lot of sad people become comedians. And the reason is because if they suffer from a lot of chronic sadness, they learn that when they're suffering a lot, they make a joke. Everybody laughs and everything is better. And they get into a zone where they actually are self-treating by having a substitute emotion of humor for sadness. Now, the even better way to do it is when you're feeling sad and you want to stimulate your brain and you want to have this better emotion, go laugh at something. Figure out what really cracks you up. I don't care how stupid it is. Figure out what your thing is that you always laugh about. And when you're feeling sadness that's maladapted to the situation, you're just blue or you haven't slept right or are you just kind of feeling crummy have that thing you always go back to and you always laugh at reliably. And that will be th that truly as the readers digest would say, that is truly the best medicine. You know, I learned two things. Number one, I have often wondered, I was talking to some guys that make their living uh, as comedians and, and I being funny is exhausting. It is exhausting. And plus people expect you to be funny all the time, which adds to your exhaustion. I never thought of it that, that that's the kind of folks that are drawn to comedy. That, that it doesn't make them that way. They yeah. were that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have a tendency. They, they've learned that they are funny anyway, so they can do it. There are a lot of people who could try to make jokes all day long to feel better, and it wouldn't work out because nobody would laugh because they're just not funny. But man, I yes, mean, I watched the GOP debate oh uh, my the gosh. other night. Yes, I oh, know man. what you're talking about. Brutal, dude. I mean, it was like a it was like a comedy killing field. Oh, my Lord. Oh, it was. I'd rather watch like a sad war movie at that. That was there's nothing worse than humor falling flat. But look, we're not going to ruin this conversation by talking about politics. We're not going to do that. But I've got to ask you a question because it does tie into happiness and anger and frustration. You left politics, I guess, in a sense. That's the way I describe it. Yeah. I left. You and I have a lot of mutual friends that left, but we have a lot that are still there. When people look at politics now, the words that the public uses to describe the state of politics, author, they're they're awful. They're horrible. It makes them despondent and sad. So I guess my question to you is if I know it makes me sad to do something or unhappy or angry or frustrated, should I keep doing it? And what's a substitute? If I want to stay informed, but I don't want to like be mad all the time. Yeah. So what, what that is, is when there's something that engages your dopamine system, it's not always pleasurable. You can get addicted to something that is not completely pleasurable. On the contrary, people do all kinds of things that actually they don't like. People do all kinds of things that will give them a little bit of a sense of relief, but that is unpleasant to them. And that's kind of what politics is doing. So people will compulsively be watching cable news channels, compulsively looking on social media, you know, following things that will give them that little tiny bit of outrage because that outrage gives them a burst of the sense of, of control. And that little bit of control is, is quite addictive in the way that that works. Now, that means that we need to metacognitively deal with that. I mean, I walked away from Washington, D.C., partly because, you know, I'd been working on the public policy side. For those who didn't follow what I was doing in D.C., everybody knows Trey Gowdy. Not everybody knows Arthur Brooks. I was the president of a big conservative think tank called the American Enterprise Institute. It was awesome. Big policy ideas you know, ways that we could have a you know stronger military, that we could have a freer economy, that we could give people more opportunity at the margins of society. It was great. 
But I finally, finally figured out along the way that something I could do that I really wanted to do was to not just give people whiz-bang policy ideas on how to live a better life, but to give people more hunger for a better life. You know, people want better policy when they want to be happy. My, my, my way to deal with the scourge of negative politics is to make people hungrier to actually be happy, to love more to try to bring more happiness to other people, including their neighbors. And that's the kind of movement that I'm trying to start because I want people to get off the, the addictive bandwagon of being mad all the time. It is addictive. It's an addiction like any other, but going you know, clean and sober from politics, it turns out to be a really, really good way to live a happier life. You agree, don't you? Oh my Lord. Uh, I mean, it is. Uh, and I tell our friends, you and I have some friends who are still there. Uh, some of whom were in, very prominent positions. Uh, liberating is the word I use. It is liberating when you, it's not that you don't care what people think about you anymore. It is, it's liberating that you're not like constantly exposing yourself. Um, well, sometimes to people who don't know the issues as well as you do. Um, yeah. it, it just, you live in fear in politics, and once you, I told someone who's very well-known right now and going through a very difficult time politically, <laughs> I said, once they realize they don't, you don't care if they shoot the hostage. You don't care. They can take it away from you, and you're still going to be fine. Yeah. You should be liberated. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you don't, you don't realize that. You know, when you're in the middle of a game, uh, a lot of times you won't realize that you're freaking out over something that's objectively boring. And that's a big problem with politics. It's actually excruciatingly boring, a lot of it. I mean, we're talking about things that normal people, they don't, you know, it's like, why don't Americans pay more attention to this? Because they have lives, man. I mean, they're going to choir practices and taking the kids to softball games and they're hanging out and having dinner with their neighbors. They don't even know how their neighbors vote for Pete's sake, right? But, you know, they're like, no, no, no. They should be freaking out about the carried interest provision of the Internal Revenue Code. They should be freaking out about, you know, fill in the blanks about the stuff that people are talking about in Washington, D.C. And, and when you get out of the bubble a little bit and you stop paying attention to the conversations and, and you realize you don't have to read that much news. You, you literally don't. I mean, you don't you can you can look at the Wall Street Journal and first thing in the morning and say, uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm, yeah. The market. Yep. Yeah, got it. Mm, yep. Yeah, I got it. There's war. Yep. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah. No. Hey, honey, what's for breakfast? And life is sweet, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's a war. People in D.C. are fighting, and the mark the, the futures went down overnight. Okay, okay, there I did that in 15 seconds. Good. I, I got to ask nice. you this before I let you go. I, I I wanted to meet somebody when I was in the house, um, and I and Boehner and Paul both allowed me to meet him, and I wound up getting to talk to him four times. He's the lead singer of U2. Uh, his real name is Paul Houston, but he goes by the nickname Bono. Um, he was like number one on my list of people that I wanted to meet that I had not met. And I was intimidated the first time I talked to him, not the fourth, but the first. How in the world? You, you are well known. You, you, were, you were being self-deprecating. You are very well known. But Oprah is like Elvis. <laughs> so how do you like say... Hey, Oprah, would you like to write a book together? I mean, how, how, did, how did y'all meet? How did, how did that happen? Yeah, no, the truth is it was at her initiative. So it turns out I have a column in the Atlantic that comes out every Thursday morning. I called, read it. Yeah. Called how to build a life. And it's not political. And if people are like, oh, all these left wing. Dun, 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 dun. No, 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 no. It's about the science of happiness. That's all it is. You know, and sometimes you get a little bit of my conservative stuff creeping in there like, hey, don't define yourself as a victim. But that, by the way, that's not conservative anymore either, because I know tons of conservatives that define themselves as victims all the time, too. That's no good either. So but there's a non-political call about the science of happiness. Turns out Oprah is one of my readers. Uh, she reads it every week and she was reading it every week during the coronavirus lockdowns. And, and then she read my last book, which was called which was called From Strength to Strength, which is what we talked about on your show last time, as a matter of fact. And. And so she called me up. She's like, hey, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm Batman, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and it, she said, you know, I'd like you to come on my podcast and talk about this stuff. I've been reading your book. And, and, and we just, just hit it off like a house on fire. You know, we came from with very different backgrounds and all that. But what we really want is, you know, we've dedicated our lives to, 
lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love. You know, I want to glorify God. I want to serve others. I want to have an adventure using ideas. And she's like, yeah, me too. And, and so, you know, politics in our conversations, and we've spent a lot of time together at this point, never has come up. It's literally never come up because we're talking about stuff that really matters more. And uh, it's been very beautiful. She's a, I mean, she has an unusual life because she can't go out. You know, I can walk around the airport and nobody's, you know, Hey, there's, I just look like every other 59 year old bald guy, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, Oprah can't do that because she's so world famous, but she's amazingly equilibrated. And part of the reason is because she understands that the, the, the wealth and the, the, the admiration and the fame, it's all just a tool that God has given her to serve other people. That's, and, and if she's not serving God, she's failed from the outset. She told me that if I'm not serving, if I'm not serving others, I'm failing from the outset. And so she sees all these things as kind of a, a, a nice thing and sometimes a cost of doing business, but the business is the business of lifting people up. And, and, you know, when she met me, she's like, Hey, this dude's got some ideas, this Harvard scientist guy. And I guess he used to run a think tank, man, let's, let's, let's do some damage together. It was beautiful. It was very beautiful. I have to say. And, and a guy, by the way, Bono, Paul Hewson from U2, he's got the same thing. I don't know him. I've never met him, but he's a ser serious Christian guy dedicated to bringing people together and, and, you know, living a lifestyle that where the admiration that people have toward him will draw people to the good as well. That's a great thing. And by the way, so have you, so have you, I remember when you were in Congress, you were doing that and it's, you know, it's like, Oh, but I bet that guy's some sort of radical warrior. And they'd meet, they'd meet Trey Gowdy and go, that guy loves everybody. <laughs> well, when you uh, when you're a prosecutor in a previous life, you kind of have a different view of who the enemy is. I mean, the enemy is not someone who votes differently from the way I vote. It would be, you know, maybe a serial killer. The last time I met Bono, I was in there talking to him for probably 45 minutes. And, you know, you can tell his staff, I mean, they're so well trained. They figured after 15 minutes he'd had enough. So they'd come over. And he said, no, 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 we're not done talking. We're not done talking. And I walk out of the room and Politico is there, as they always are. They're ubiquitous on Capitol Hill. And they said, what did y'all talk about? And I said, we talked about Jesus. That is yeah. exactly what I talked to the lead singer of the world's greatest rock and roll band about. Yeah, he is. He he, yeah. he is a believer and is, that's reflected in his songs. And it wasn't fame. It wasn't music. It wasn't yeah. being one of the most well-known people on the face of the earth. It was a you know Jewish carpenter from 2000 years ago. Yeah. And for Oprah to be one of the most recognizable people on earth. And then to say that a book and a beautiful tree or pets you care about and a decently crackling fire gets her on the road to happiness is there's a lesson there, Arthur. There's a lesson there for all of us. Yeah. 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 I mean, don't, I mean, those are nice circumstances, but you got to do the work. You got to do the work. You got to understand where true happiness comes from. You have to engage the habits and make the commitments in your life that'll make it so. And then you got to share with other people. But if you do that, if you do knowledge and practices and sharing, then happiness is, or greater happiness, happierness is not, is not beyond the reach of any of us. Well, I loved it, and I do read your column. Um, I, I there's there's you know, there, I I really don't know anyone who, if you put him on a polygraph, would not say I, I would like to have more meaning and purpose in life. I I I, I mean, unless you're sociopath, you, you people want more meaning and purpose, yeah. and you're helping them find it. So you were great at uh, your previous post, but I. I think this is this is your real calling. That's my two cents worth. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate right. it. So good to talk to you and see you as always. Uh, the book is available everywhere. I, it looked like maybe Penguin was the publisher, Random House. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, Penguin Random House uh, is the publisher. Portfolio is the imprint. Um, as they say, sold where all fine books are found. Yes, and I'm glad that you're with Penguin because I'm, your, your, your books will make up for the lack of sales and in, in the ones that they paid me to write. So hopefully it'll, <laughs> it'll all balance out. Arthur Brooks, God bless you. Thank you for joining us. God bless you too. Thanks. Nice talking to you. You too. Take care. You too. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, 
And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.